Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to the Global Transaction Finance Reinvented Conference 2022. As we embark on the second half of 2022, dark clouds loom ever larger over the horizon. What, while we appear to be finally emerging from the worst of COVID, after almost three years of unprecedented global mayhem, significant uncertainty and risk remain. Prospects for the global transaction finance business have been impacted by rising inflation, precipitating widespread economic slowdown that will exacerbate the financial and fiscal position of many emerging market countries. Compounded by supply chain disruption caused by geopolitical conflicts. The International Monetary Fund forecasts that global economic growth will slow from 6.1% in 2021 to 3.6% this year. Interest rate hikes and deterioration in global economic activity will deepen the revenue slump that we have seen in the past two years. Heightened business uncertainties, tighter financing conditions, will continue to create volatile demand for liquidity, creating even more trying operating environments for financial institutions. As the global economy enters into an, unexpected, into an expected slowdown in the months ahead, the financial services industry has to grapple with the challenges of increased risk of multiple funds, the impact of recession or likely recession on debt levels, private and public, on asset quality and how it will impact financial stability itself. The silver lining amidst the crisis is the acceleration among corporates to go digital and use online tools, helping financial institutions to increase efficiency and lower cost to serve. Over the last decades, globalization has been an overarching trend that has deeply influenced the way we produce, we trade and we live. The recent COVID pandemic, as well as the geopolitical events across the globe, and especially, but not only, um, the Russia-Ukraine conflict in Europe, um, have led to a transitional slowdown of the globalization drive observed so far. And it resulted in some new trends around polarization, regionalization, block building. These create new challenges and we, as global financial institutions, need to be ready to address these. That being said, some main trends remain. There continues to be significant cross-border trading, trading, being in sourcing of raw materials, buying or selling unfinished goods, and trading end products and services. There also continues to be even more so significant cross-border activities, as recently evidenced by the post-COVID travel trends. Business and leisure travel is generally back, including the no famous revenge travel. Um, but we're also seeing student, ex student exchanges revolving, overseas real estate activities, working abroad um, as expatriates um, keep moving around, just to name a few. So all these activities, trade and non-trade related, 
lead to high demand for so-called high-value cross-border payments. To connect a globalized world in the space of payments, financial institutions are required to be reliable part partners of their clients, who in turn entrust them ending their financial flows. These financial institutions must be able to execute legitimate payments practically around the entire world. So not just with large domestic markets or across certain developed regions, but globally. The payment execution needs to happen in full compliance with applicable laws and regulation, ensuring higher standards of KYC, sanction and embargoes, filtering and transaction monitoring. But also strict controls around terrorist financing, proliferation financing, which are definitely a must with no margin for error. At the same time, payments execution must be financially secure, fast, convenient, and competitively priced to satisfy our client expectations. International correspondent banks are well positioned to fulfill this important role in high-value cross-border payments. Fintech companies have clearly started to play a significant role in various parts of the global payment ecosystem. But yet, when it comes to the safe and sound execution of cross-border high-value payments, international correspondent banks have a competitive edge. These international correspondent banks typically first are large, well-capitalized, financially sound institutions, de facto reducing the financial risk client face in international high-value payment processing. Second, they are subject to stringent regulations which provide their clients with further security and comfort. Third, they have the technology to execute substantial volumes and uh, high value of payments each day through account relationships or clearing systems. Fourth, they hold deep pools of liquidity in major currency. And that is a prerequisite to provide high value payment execution as a major clearer. Fifth, they, they benefit from a large network of correspondent banks globally for payment execution, including reliable and trusted relationships at individual level, so as to help with conflict resolution in case of disputes and error. Lastly, and very importantly, they offer thought leadership in technology, trends, and governance. A key challenge for international bank correspondent banks in recent years has certain be, certainly been the fast accelerating regulatory requirements. In particular, when it comes to the governance framework that must be in place to control non-financial risk inherent to international correspondent banking business. This came with significantly add-on add costs impacting the overall risk-reward considerations when it comes to the international correspondent banking business model. The net effect of this challenge has been an element of financial exclusion. Right? Correspondent banking providers have reduced their network, and when compared to five, 10 years ago, they typically today offer correspondent banking accounts to banks in fewer countries, 
Therefore, correspondent the banking accounts to fewer banks in one particular country. They put stronger restrictions on their maximum appetite for market share in respective markets. They also put stronger emphasis on the avoidance of sole provider status in core currencies. They're more strictly limiting downstream correspondent banking. And, and finally, they are more selective with the type of flows that they consider acceptable within their respective risk appetite. Consequently, the access to international correspondent banking services in some countries or regions in the world is becoming limited and possibly even restricted. Even in countries that are covered by correspondent banking providers, smaller institutions with low payment volumes and challenging local market environment may struggle to process cross-border international payments. Um, there could be no direct linkage to a clearing system, no direct dollar or euro correspondent banking provider, and even no indirect access, given the limited appetite of correspondent banking provider for downstream correspondent banking. Consequently, international correspondent banking has become a scarce commodity and a sensitive topic in a number of countries globally, and this is obviously negatively affecting the respondent bank in these countries. It also affects the correspondent banking provider's ability to continue to connect a globalized world in the space of payments. So, what is the way forward? What is required for correspondent banks to be able to continue to connect a globalized world in the space of payments and address the current challenges? Well, couple of critical overarching consideration in this context and in no particular order. First, a clear understanding, not only of the current regulatory requirements, but also a vision into the future regulatory trends. I, what are tomorrow's regulation going to be? How can I be prepared to these? Second, a close dialogue with regulator, but also with respondent banks and industry groups and forums to address concerns prepare carefully and implement timely. Third, industry collaboration remains critical, in particular in non-competitive areas, which then allows for cost reduction, right? such as the SWIFT KYC registry, for example. But also critical to respond to changing customer demands and landscape. We've mentioned the digitalization, but there's also the emergence of SWIFT Go, right? Our clients and regulators today are asking for accurate, real-time tracking of the payment flows, full transparency, and competitive pricing. Fourth, capacity to adapt to the challenges that are growing, that are growing right now. A number of fintechs are, are, are presenting to long-established banks. But it's also getting ready for the accelerating digitalization of the correspondent banking ecosystem. And Bumping, you've mentioned this in your uh, introduction speech. Fifth, further automation of controls and increasing application of artificial intelligence, machine learning, which down the line will limit human manual intervention while ensuring safe execution environment. Six, shaping the future. Right, via industry groups and forums where correspondent banking providers and respondent banks come together as common stakeholders. SWIFT, BAFT, the Wolfsberg Group are just a few examples.
Seven, further driving of payment messaging standards, right? That are better machine readable and hence again, support automated control and artificial intelligence. And I'm thinking here about forthcoming SWIFT ISO 20 or 22 migration for later this year. Another important point is addressing the uneven regulations applicable to certain new markets and entrants when compared to traditional financial institutions. Whether this is adjusting the rules and regulations or making sure that these rules actually apply to all actors of a similar sector. Last, fair and reasonable pricing in the context of safe and sound execution of legitimate end-to-end -end payment around the entire globe, thereby fulfilling the promise of connecting the globalized world in the space of payments, while at the same time ensuring full compliance with applicable sanctions and embargoes, and effectively combating money laundering and financial crime, preventing terrorist financing and proliferation financing but also protecting as much as possible against fraud, our clients and our institutions. We at the Bank accept the challenge and are committed to provide thought leadership and to play our part as a major international correspondent banking provider to connect the globalized world in the space of payments today and tomorrow. Um, maybe just before I go into the main topic agenda, let me just uh, quickly introduce uh, UOB Transaction Banking. So Transaction Banking is a key product offering uh, in UOB. Um, we have made and continue to make big investments uh, in developing solutions in the areas of cash, trade and financial supply chain. Um, the aim is to provide working capital solutions to our customers in our key target markets namely is in Southeast Asia, as well as the greater China region. Three key trends. The first one, the increasing interest rates and the high inflation. The opportunity cost of either cash are much higher today than it was before. Businesses, um, it is now more important for them for good and effective working capital and cash management. They are looking for, 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 for cash management banks like UOB uh, to help them with, with solutions on, 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 on managing their cash. Firstly, to have better control of their cash flow, to pay and collect on time, and in many cases now especially, uh, to pay and collect just in time. Uh, how can they have controls so that the cash flows are being managed and controlled? And also to have visibility of where their cash is and how to then deploy this cash effectively. Um, cash management banks like, like, like uh, UOB have been then working with our customers um, not just to tell them how to rationalize their bank account, uh, but also to give them visibility of all their bank accounts, particularly where a lot of, of, of businesses do operate in, in, in multiple countries. In, in Asia, Southeast Asia, in the greater China region, where, where UOB focuses our solutions in. Number two is digitization. So digitalization, 
to to Rust is it's not just about automation or how to be more in terms of, 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 of process automation, but it's about how we can have a meaningful and positive change in the process of operating the, the, the businesses so that we improve both the customer as well as the various stakeholders experience. So we see actually businesses transitioning from paper processes to electronic. Many times these uh, gives benefit in terms of, of, of shortening turnaround times and sometimes even leading to, to, to near real-time processes. All the economies are, are, are improving um, mm. and, and, and businesses, business activities are, are, are picking up. Uh, of course, um, there are certain sectors that, that may be impacted more greatly in terms of, of, of high interest rates and inflation than others. Uh, or maybe some are also just uh, being impacted by, by certain situations that may be not related to interest rates or inflation, but, but more so <clears throat> uh, in terms of, of, of the different cycles of, of, of the uh, pandemic and lockdowns and things like that. So as we said, uh, economies are growing. Um, mm. But our perspective is, is, is then uh, we, we, we will provide solutions across the board. Um, secondly, as well, we do see that, that, that the, there's a need then uh, for, for, for large corporates as, as we then look into our supply chain um, and, and, and banks that you will be how we can work with, with, with this large corporates as anchors to their supply chain so that we can also help them with their SME suppliers. Um, and and, and the, the benefit that, that UOB has is, is, is that we are covering a very wide range of, 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 of clientele in, in all the markets that we operate, not just large corps, but also into the SMEs. And therefore, we are very familiar with SMEs in, in Southeast Asia and, and the greater China region. And we are very happy to, to talk to the, this large corporate anchors as well as their SME suppliers on how we can use supplier financing to, 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 to help the, the, the value chain. So I think, I think um, there are so different, different sectors as well as different um, uh, segments of, 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 of the corporate client base uh, probably needs help on the different basis. Uh, traditionally, I think, um, for example, in, in, in the areas of, of, of moving away from cash and checks into uh, making digital payments, um, a lot of, of, of our customers, particularly those who then deal with, with, with consumers, um, they are actually finding it hard for, for, to, to move consumers uh, away from checks uh, and through some promotions that they can be done jointly with the banks, uh, they can sway some of this over from, from, from the checks into electronic payments like PayNow in Singapore, do it now in Malaysia or PromPays yeah. in, 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 in Thailand. Uh, but then in, there's also another element like for example in Singapore where, where there's a high penetration rate of, 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 of consumers using credit card. How do they move? Uh, and, and from the, the merchant's perspective, um, it, when they then look to, to see how can, they can reduce some of this uh, MDRs, 
uh, and the costs associated with it. Um, so it is sometimes it's 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 it's, it's a matter of of firstly working with 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 our customers and the businesses to avail the the payment methods first. So in this brief, we want to share some of the insights we crystallized from the transaction finance and risk management program. For transaction banking, we will show you a flavor of the entries we received and we will identify top transaction banks in Asia for you. And we also give you a sense of the global players and their projects we like most. Uh, uh, we will uh, finalize and finish with some trends and themes shaping transaction banking as well as risk management. So if you look at the structure of submissions we received in transaction banking, you've seen about 28% of entries made submissions for trade and supply chain finance. And uh, this was of no surprise because in previous years, usually cash management uh, or overall transaction banking have dominated, but given the global context, uh, this year trade and supply chain finance uh, took uh, precedent. One reason is certainly the uh, context which has disrupted key global supply chains, uh, increased prices for major commodities and is feeding global inflation. And all this in a rising interest rate environment. We also see, however, that players in transaction banking have forcefully responded to those challenges. In regards to entries we received for the products in frictionless categories, uh, to your right, investments are going into ramping up online capabilities and aiming to do business in real time. And it's not just internet-based online banking, but about people adapting to mobile-based solutions. And we saw a lot more institutions making enhancements with forecasting capabilities or with integration of supplier onboarding mechanisms to drive corporate client experience. We also introduced a new scoring methodology that captured in a more quantitative way, the achievements of banks in transaction banking across uh, those eight dimensions, such as digital, consumer, technology, innovation, and uh, mandate implementation. And out of the 32 players we assessed in this year's programs, so as you can see are uh, the top transaction banks in 2022, and you can see under which particular metric your respective institution has performed well in particular. It was Standard Chartered Bank this year, which outperformed all other peers in this year's program. Winners represented here demonstrated all the exceptional corporate services and advisory capabilities as they migrated customers and their ecosystem partners into the digital space to meet their most pressing financial needs. So here are some of the banks we liked most in this year's transaction finance project on, on, the globe, on a global scale. And we'll only touch briefly on these three. In the area of supply chain and ESG, Standard Charter successfully demonstrated to us the commercialization of its collaboration with the supply chain finance tech, FinTech. For global trade finance and global Euro and US clearing capabilities, Deutsche Bank has a high book transfer ratio of more than 50% for both Euro and US dollar clearing services. With the ability to clear almost half of its cross-border payments under five minutes. And it also quickly responded to shifting dynamics within the trade finance ecosystem. Uh, in cash treasury and management, Bank of America delivered reliable cash flow forecasts that helps anticipate liquidity needs and determine financing strategies. It also implemented the project as a model for any treasury 
on how to integrate a new acquisition, even in the most difficult of times. Scarce liquidity at the end of value chain, coupled with focus on conserving cash while making early payments to suppliers, has also increasing, increased utilization demand for existing programs. Nimble fintechs that hopped on early are now scaling, such as link logics and deep tier financing. And then there's data, data, and data. So automation, elimination of manual operation processes, digital infrastructure exchange arrangements in the public and private initiatives as a means for effective lending, KYC, trade, and financing purposes. Last, the partnership between banks and fintechs. Strategic partnerships between banks and third-party fintechs will continue to breed innovation in cross-border and merchant-related payments. Banks to augment digital by providing scale to fintechs in exchange for bringing down heavy IT-related costs. In cash management, by far 91% of banks we spoke to make digital channels and tools to reduce cost to serve their top priority, followed by faster collections and payments. While the top priorities under trade and supply chain finance, banks are aiming for building an online trade portal and platform to build the infrastructure for end-to-end -end digital trade processes. We are switching now over to risk management. So for the risk awards, we received about 25 submissions from banks across the APEC region. And while banks position each of the key drivers in risk management, there are compliance technology and organizational areas in a certain pecking order, we have seen that currently technology and organizational risk drivers are the more prominent ones. Looking into the area of traditional risk management practices, the transition, the transition period for the final Basel II implementation is until beginning of 2028, as you may be aware of. Also, the adoption of the finalized Basel III framework across Asia has been rather fragmented, and with some markets still amid implementation of the first part of Basel III or even the adoption of Basel II. A note on this, perhaps, the issue of crypto asset exposure. The Basel Committee suggested that banks limit their exposure to the so-called Group 2, just 1% of their Tier 1 capital, and Group 2, which excludes the regulated stablecoins and synthetic stocks. Banks have also been pushing the AI and machine learning agenda in risk management by developing stronger predictive risk models to support the business. In particular, integrating ML models for credit lending is a key focus area. Banks aim to create a single platform that allows for concurrent generation of different risk models, and the results can actually be quite significant. It's not just about the number of variables assessed that can go up between perhaps 10 to 2 to 10 times we have seen, and a lift of the accuracy ratio of beyond 50%. But I think the area which is most significant is really the impact uh, of modeling the development time. Typically, traditional banks or traditional models may take up to two years, followed by another two or three years for the models actually used. In contrast, ML models we have seen are swiftly to develop and to deploy. Red tech, so regulatory technology, which enhances, automates regulatory compliance processes in real time has rapidly gained importance in financial services amidst growing regulatory complexity and the increasing sophistication of financial crime. However, to maintain compliance, banks are challenged to create the infrastructure to manage a tremendous volume of data, including non-structured data, and that needs to be synthesized. 
Last, in the area of climate risk, international agreements and industry-wide disclosure recommendations are already actually setting reporting standards. More banks have begun to evaluate how climate risk modeling can be integrated into existing risk models across the spectrum in credit market risk and enterprise risk management. And that also requires from banks to seek new data sources and develop new methods for risk quantification. So we want to share with you two examples of the banks we like in, in this risk management program. One is Axis Bank in India in the enterprise risk management, and the other is CDBC Taiwan for climate risk. So the ERM team of Axis Bank made numerous efforts during the pandemic to enforce and coordinate restrictions raised by health and safety measures. In the post-pandemic situation, their ERM team uh, worked to understand the convergence of environmental and market risks as the spectrum of threats has widened, obviously considerably. At CDBC, the bank has adopted industry-wide recommendations for disclosure of climate-related risks by using sophisticated technologies, data, and models to manage climate-related risks. It developed coherent processes to identify and manage climate-related risks and integrated those into the existing risk management framework. It also developed a set of key metrics and targets that can address several market-relevant physical and transition risks. What we also found important uh, at CDPC is that the bank set up clear mandates and accountabilities. It created the ESG task force under the group president and a sustainability committee, which meets regularly to validate strategies and decisions. At the same time, group risk integrated the climate risk policies and regulations and worked out response strategies for each of its business lines. And since 2010, CDBC has assigned agreements and joint networks, including Carbon Disclosure Project, the Global Impact Investing Network, and Partnerships for Carbon Accounting Financials to improve its reporting capabilities and disclosure efforts. So digital agility will be certainly key to winning the future of transaction banking services. And we also see there is an impetus to lean more towards fee-based activities as rate-sensitive streams underperform in transaction banking. We also see new opportunities in value-added services that can be monetized, for example, banking as a service through data analytics. Banks also aim to achieve a balance of optimizing cost to serve as well as increased IT digital infrastructure spend to cater to clients better. And then there's obviously also the growing fintech collaboration in transaction banking. In risk management, we see a growing appetite and focus on climate risk related activities and the banks are dedicating more resources and activities into it uh, in 2022 and going forward. That's it for that. Thank you so much. Thank you to all our panelists and moderator. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our next session is on transformation in cross-border payments. Fulfilling the promise of speed, security, transparency, and traceability. Please join me in welcoming the Senior Research Analyst at the Asian Banker, Mr. Siddharth Chandani. Uh, with me joining today uh, for today's discussion is Mark Rika, Managing Director and Global Head of Product, Institutional Cash Management at Deutsche Bank. He will share the, his perspectives with us on the evolution of cross-border payments how are FIs working along with customers, peers, and partners to overcome frictions around fragmentation of standards? And how large-scale developments have the potential to impact the legacy cross-border business models? 
The session will focus on some of the breakthroughs that need to happen to apprehend the lack of interoperability and infrastructure reachability in cross-border payments, the journey to achieve ISO 20022 standards and initiatives, the readiness of customers to adapt new payment standards and lessons from SEPA, and how can they be applied in Asia-Pacific and the potential evolution of today's correspondent banking model. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. And uh, thank you for having me uh, doing a very interesting session. So actually, you're spot on with your introduction. Actually, correspondent banking, so global cross-border payments that are operated mostly through the SWIFT network, actually, the biggest asset is also the biggest problem. So I think the biggest asset that we have as an industry is the network. We can mostly reach nearly all the banks globally. And that, of course, you need to have a kind of a minimum standard from communication and also from interconnectivity. Next to the challenges that banks do have between themselves to tackle the KYC challenges, to tackle the cost of KYC, there have been kind of several, call it industry initiatives under the orchestration of SWIFT that really wanted to bring the black box of cross-border payments more into the stage what the clients are actually asking for. The biggest transformation of it started already back in 2017. Mm -hmm. 2017, a few transaction banks came together and together with SWIFT created SWIFT GPI, so the Global Payments Initiative. What the GPI brought, actually, it is today kind of standards on how we are operating as financial institutions cross-border payments. So it brought in, it introduced a unique end-to-end -end reference for actual payments processing, which then allows full transparency of payments across, let's say, the whole SWIFT network that brings transparency, but also it brings visibility into the respective speed. So it has been mentioned earlier in the presentation, for example, that mostly of our cross-border payments end-to-end -end would only take a couple of minutes. That is the piece what SWIFT created with the industry, and it has been developed in a very, let's say, fast way to become the new standard. And what has changed over the last couple of two years is not that we would make a new revolution, but more like an evolution. The industry has been focused on of the friction points around the payments processing. For example, we still have problems with free format investigations. So the industry is looking on how we could actually structure and be more efficient in these processes as well. And also creating new features like pre-validation of payments. Mm. Because if you would look within the banking community for people that are handling operations, what is the biggest problem of a bank that initiates cross-border payments is actually when they come back, right? You send it, you are not aware if mm -hmm. the beneficiary account is still relevant, or for example, you miss something like a special code in a certain field mm -hmm. that is required for the beneficiary country. So all these things, SWIFT together with the industry is working to allow a much more smoother payments processing and tackle actually the friction points from the beginning instead looking at it always post-processing. But also kind of new initiatives because the SWIFT GPI piece, with any doubt, it was more targeted at big corporates that are operating globally. They saw immediately at the, the advantages. But also the industry said, look, we need to do something for low-value payments. Then mm -hmm. also last year, the initiative around SWIFT Go was implemented from with, of course, the orchestration of SWIFT, but banks from across the globe created that initiative to come up with a solution for a cost-effective low-value payment scheme. Mm -hmm. And that is something, of course, 
It's still in a project phase. It's still mm -hmm. in an early adoption phase. But that will definitely also change on the correspondent banking landscape, mm -hmm. the way on how we process payments across, let's say, the globe. But the underlying framework for all this is, of course, standards and data. And, and you know how particularly important rich data exchange can make cross-border payments you know, go a long way in making them efficient. Uh, this is especially with the introduction of faster payment and domestic real-time systems around the world, uh, you know, which are pushing for interoperability between payment standards. So in conjunction to this, uh, BIS in a report also highlighted the benefits of interlinking arrangements and APIs to enhance cross-border payments. Uh, while the use of APIs and particularly harmonized APIs uh, can make uh, payment systems more interoperable, yet lack of standardization around protocols, formats, data, and dictionaries, and security features, you know, are, are presenting like a host of challenges here. Now, the migration of I to ISO 2002 to standards will foster international collaboration to prevent fragmentation at global level. Where is Deutsche Bank on this journey? Because your initial remark was that actually uh, industry, but also BIS, they are looking in the way on how to interconnect certain, for example, instant payment schemes. There we have also gained certain kind of experience with the industry because we are also part of a project called IXB, which is in fact a project that is managed through the clearinghouse, so the operator of the US instant payment scheme and EBA Clearing, who is the operator of the instant payment scheme in Europe, to work on a project to interconnect those two schemes and to allow instant payments between Europe and the US 24 by 7. And I think there, from a technical perspective, and that comes exactly down to the standardization, if you already talk the same technical language, it already starts to become more easier in the discussion. But I think what does not need to be underestimated, and this definitely something that is seen within the project, are the points around non-technical issues that you need to resolve before. Because that is the piece when it comes down to regulatory environment, who takes risk, AML responsibility, all these things that needs to be taken into consideration. But when it comes down now to ISO, ISO mm -hmm. 20022, as being in Europe the number one euro clearing bank, and as our whole market under the control of the European Central Bank will move their RTGS system in November this year away from SWIFT MT messages, but to ISO messages, we are compliant and we need to be compliant. That is definitely something. And we are embracing the respective move to ISO as a, not only like a challenge for investing to get our infrastructure right, but also to see as an opportunity. Because ISO was a long overdue thing in the industry because a 25 years to 30 years old standard is not fit for purpose any longer to meet our client and also our regulatory demand. With the industry implementation of ISO, it is the first time that banks that would use that format, they are able actually to put all relevant payment parties into one message, that you do not lose information across the payment flow. You have, for example, corporate clients that mm -hmm. since a couple of years, they started their payment factories. They are on behalf of payments. It was impossible to put all this data into an MT103 because the amount of data which it could cater for was limited. ISO can cater for this one. Mm -hmm. And also the possibility of ISO to move away from free text formats into much more structured data, we see it as a huge advantage to implement much more efficiencies in our own payments processing. 
and not only the processing of the payment, but also the subsequent processes like AML. Mm-hmm. When you want to make transaction screening on a free text, you need to do much more work on them mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. if you get the data on a structured way. So from a Deutsche Bank, we are definitely at the end of our implementation journey because we need to be ready by November 2022. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And we are going to implement from the start ISO, let's say globally, within our institutions. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand side, mm-hmm. you have the drivers that are the financial market infrastructure. Like I said, European Central Bank November. You have the Bank of England going with the GBP clearing RTGS in the course of next year. You have the US that will move FedWire and ships also to the ISO standard mm-hmm. in a, a bit later, I think in 2024. So I think what we did from an infrastructure perspective is to be ready, but that is a very important point. For example, our bank clients from Asia, they do not need to worry. What do I do now as of November with my old MT formats? Yeah, mm-hmm. they can still use the legacy format. Yeah. We will take care that the, the payments would be compliant in the respective market infrastructure. That is something what we do. But on the other mm-hmm. side is every bank that is actually operating cross-border, cross-border payments, they should have definitely a plan on how they are going to implement ISO. Mm. And one of the biggest advice that we could give actually is not only using it as an IT project. You should very closely look from an Mm. end-to-end value chain Mm. to see what is the impact, what are also the opportunities, and the most important thing, communication towards clients. Because if you can cater for more rich data, your clients need to be ready as well to initiate and to consume that. So that is something what we are definitely having embraced. And if they are, of course, we have people on the ground in Asia that are very well equipped to answer detailed questions from the respective institutions and to support them along this journey. So, so now from an ISO perspective and you know from implementing standards, let's discuss some of the use cases you know, as a part of this wider API ecosystem. It is the magic is what has happened in Europe, which undoubtedly also took time. Mm. When you see the first time, it took close to 15 years, so one, five years, Mm. from the idea of SEPA until the implementation. It is actually trying to standardize through collaboration. That is the most important piece that banks need to be willing to collaborate in the non-competitive space. And that was really the point around the implementation of SEPA is to have the dialogue, first of all, with the biggest players, to get all the respective banks, to get industry associations, but also to get sometimes regulators on board, really to push that idea across the respective markets. Because SEPA, it is actually a European standard Mm -hmm. that, first of all, every bank needs to be reachable to but also it operates on the same technical standard. And that is something, of course, when you look at it from a European perspective, the thing which is a bit easier compared to Asia is that at least from a legal framework, (laughs) the European (laughs) Union can bring rules to every European country that are harmonized. That is a bit more complicated when it comes down to the ASEAN region, where still (laughs) you have own jurisdictions that want to have full control around it. But I think the opportunity cost is lower if you would actually collaborate and standardize certain topics. 
And I think there are, of course, already initiatives in ASEAN mm -hmm. on how to interconnect instant payment schemes. But that work should also be a lesson learned on how can we use an existing successful project between two countries, potential to multiple ones. But for us, I think the, the experience that we have been learning actually is to be open for change and try mm -hmm. to standardize as much as possible. You mm -hmm. won't be able to standardize 100%. But to have a good baseline that are able to interconnect. It is the same like with mobile phones. Mm. Not every country has 4G mm. or 5G, but still you can make phone calls. So because mm. you are operating on a minimum standard. And that is exactly the same way. And the second point, which is very much important, is to have the dialogue with clients. Not potentially with the retail clients, because they would use your own mobile app and you can control actually what they do. But you need to get also your biggest clients on board that they also would need to change their processes to leverage. And they would also need to see the actual benefits for their own business. And that is something where actually um, European corporates, but also global corporates, they see the efficiency potentially not from day one, but in the long run, definitely there are advantages. Mm. Yeah, That is okay. something There is definitely a lessons learned that could also be actually um, exported into other regions um, of the world. Now, you know, I've heard of these developments that you've spoken about. One that is attracting tremendous amount of attention is the development and research around the central bank digital currencies. How can the launch of wholesale CBDCs alter the current correspond correspondent banking system? And, you know, flows that it's been discussed that they will play a significant role in streamlining the, the, the cross-border payments. Uh, because what I understand is participating commercial banks are able to hold uh, these CBDCs directly, of course, depending on different models that will be there, gaining access to foreign currencies without the need to have accounts with correspondent banks. So one to understand how today correspondent banking model fits into the future of wholesale CBDC structure. I think that is something where we also see a lot of attention, not mm -hmm. only in Asia, but also across the globe from different kinds of projects. And I think the focus, as we discussed today, it's more on the wholesale side. That is mm -hmm. something... Um, where definitely it will be, in my personal view, complementary for the time being to the existing model. I would not see today the immediate value add of using a CBDC for a regular low-value cross-border payment. That is something where actually you need also to bid. We are already efficient as an industry from a cost perspective. yeah. And if there would be no value add, I think the industry will not move all to the new one. But there are definitely use cases, and the use case, like you mentioned, if there are projects that are operated from central banks that bring use cases into the wholesale settlement world, that bring value add to the industry, that will definitely be a game changer from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Take the case around if it, and I think it is, those projects do have the same kind of challenge as every project that is working on cross-border payments. Mm -hmm. It is the reach. It is to reach how many participants are actually reachable through that system. If you have only three banks that are participating, it may be the use case for the three banks, but not for the rest of the world. Thank you to all our panelists and moderator. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to speak on our next session, Creating Transparency in Supply Chains Through Data, Partnerships and Technology. Please join me in welcoming the Senior Research Manager at The Asian Banker, Mr. Namir Kaisi. Good afternoon.
Um, to start the conversation, I would just like to um, focus on the future of supply chains amid the current disruptions and uncertainty caused by, as mentioned before, geopolitical uh, conflict, and as we all know, the resurgence of COVID-19. Now, um, often technology innovation has paved the way for new solutions uh, for current uh, challenges such as um, digitalization through building a network to streamline trade finance and create new global standards for the entire ecosystem to um, collaborate seamlessly. Now, my question for the esteemed um, panelists is, um, how will the use of digital solutions by utilizing data analytics transform the way that financial institutions are running the business and um, expedite the operations and processes in supply chain finance? Um, another aspect of this question could be, what are financial institutions doing in terms of um, implementing digital tools and platforms? And how are financial institutions working with partners on collaborating with um, global trade networks to reduce complexity, cost, and optimize efficiency? And um, as they say, ladies first. So please, Mohi, uh, can you please give us your insights? Um, okay, good afternoon again to all the uh, audience on this forum. And thank you for the invitation to start off with. I think to your question, um, it has been one that I would say is complex in itself. So I will attend uh, to maybe address uh, some aspect of it and I will leave it to my other panelists um, to cover the rest. Um, so I think I will start off with by saying that um, historically, when we handle supply chain financing, it has always been data-driven in the very first place. However, um, the processes of financing supply chain deals are historically very manual-based. It's all paper um, submissions where we will have to then process it uh, according to the applications and as according to the underlying trade documents. Now, having digital solution as well as system or platform to enable the entire collations of search trade flow data to be able to compartmentalize them and therefore later on to be facilitating the data mining and data performance analysis um, does help in terms of uh, speeding up as well as reducing the risk uh, to continue our journey to offer even more supply chain financing. So I would say that is an enabler. But having said that, um, we are not there yet. Uh, clearly, over the past two years, um, be due to the uh, trade tension at one point in time, and then leading on to the COVID pandemic, we see a lot of accelerations in terms of the technology space that is catered for trade finance or supply chain purposes. Now, having said that, the variety that we are observing in the market is tremendous which means that it also posed as a challenge both for the anchor client of ourselves as well as the financing institutions such as um, UOB to make a decision as to how do we then select the right technology platform service provider as well as to try to organize this variety of data that potentially we can consume into uh, meaningful data that can be used for the facilitating of financing. 
So there has been a lot of work as well. And I trust that my colleagues in other banks are also having similar activities. But we are definitely not yet there yet as in we can have a click of a button to decide whether we finance or not finance. But clearly, I think we are seeing um, the right um, directions um, towards that end goal at some point in time. Maybe with that problem statement, um, I pass on to my uh, colleague, uh, panelists first to see whether you, know, you have uh, further to add on. Thank you, Poi, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, let me take one step back and um, start with uh, when we talk about supply chain, what exactly are we looking at, right? So uh, the way I look at it in, within supply chain, there are three different um, wheels, so to speak, of, of supply chain which exist, right? The first one is the physical supply chain, the actual movement of goods, services, whatever you call it. The second one is information supply chain, the information that resides in the supply chain, right? Uh, who is selling to whom? At, at, at what price? Uh, did the supplier get paid on time? Uh, if there was a delay, why was the delay? Was there a credit or a debit note raised? Uh, was there a problem with the shipment, right? Uh, so that is all information which uh, resides in the supply chain itself. And then third one is the financial supply chain, where we as banks or FI get involved, uh, and then we finance different aspects of the supply chain. Um, now, when we are looking at supply chain, um, what we ideally should be doing, and, and most of the banks are doing, but there is a, some way to go, is to see how do we, the physical supply chain is becoming in many ways digital or more connected and stuff, right? Uh, so, but when we are participating as a bank, the first one is, are we using all the information which uh, lies inside the supply chain to make our decision? Right. Um, you talked about the geopolitical risk, right? A lot of information regarding the movement of goods. What has been the history of that? And, and, and how do we assess the supply chain and the players in the supply chain relies with that information? It is just not about the credit information, but also about the information which lies in the supply chain. So are we accessing that and how do we access that? Right. And then the third one is, again, making it more digital from our perspective. Right. And that I would say a lot of work is happening. Uh, you have different platforms which banks themselves have come where they can onboard uh, the company, their suppliers, and, and, and put them onto the portal and finance them. But also a lot of fintech players or different players which are there, uh, which onboard the whole uh, supply chain ecosystem on their platforms and then invite banks to participate and finance that. So that is a good amount of work happening. Um, where we as an industry can do more work is understanding the information which lies inside the uh, supply chain, the information supply chain, as I call it, and then using that to make key decisions, right? Now, I know, and, and, and again, I've been involved in some of the work where uh, you can actually look at the information which is lying there, uh, have different forms of analysis. You know, you could use a machine learning tool or an artificial intelligence tool and literally get into a model where you can predict whether this invoice will get paid on time or not. Just going to the extent, does it get paid in time or not? Whether it'll be a delay for 30 days or 15 days? And I think in many ways, once we as an industry are there, it will create a very, very different environment for all of us to understand the supply chain and be involved in it and finance the supply chain. Now, coming back to the second aspect, which was the digital, right? Now, 
given what happened in the last year, especially from a COVID perspective, and most of us working from home and uh, access to office or access to uh, you know office-related work or paper were just not there. Right? Uh, there's a huge demand to do things electronically, digitally, right? We still have customers who come and ask us, hey, you know what? Uh, we have this lockdown happening in a particular country. Let's say uh, when China was there, how do you help us move things better and digitally, right? We don't have access. Can we do that? Information is lying in different parts. There's shipping information. There is uh, invoice information, which is lying. How do you bring all of that on a digital platform uh, somebody sitting from their home can provide you all of that information. And on that, on the back of that basis, you enable the supply chain by financing it or by facilitating a payment or by converting an FX and all of that, right? There's also aspects of regulation, uh, which either facilitate or hinder that movement because from a regulation-wise, still the move to digital is happening as we speak. Um, so that is another area where uh, we as an industry need to uh, work towards. So um, I have another question uh, related to fintechs, actually, uh, which is um, what is the role of uh, industry players um, in building a sustainable digital trade finance ecosystem with the rise of fintechs? How can banks reinvent the role in trade through, um, you know, um, their flexibility and speed in offering customized solutions to remain, um, you know, competitive, uh, sustain their return on investments, um, improve performance and increase um, uh, market share? So um, the way I see fintechs and bank interacting, I see a space for collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is where um, banks and fintech collaborate. Banks traditionally have been the biggest user of technology, right? I mean, if you look at from an um, technology company perspective, financial services is the biggest user of technology, right? In many ways, that is what fintechs are bringing, right? They are bringing new technology, they are bringing new use cases, or using technology to solve a use case. One, one, or one form of fintech is where they are really looking at making things easier and simpler for the supply chain, whether it is processing of um, data information or giving information, whether the supplier has shipped, what time is it done, and all that. And that is a big space which is there. And on the back of it, um, they invite banks and financiers to, to come and participate in the supply chain and finance the supplier. From a bank perspective, it is also a win-win because the banks can come and actually be the financier on the platform and finance uh, the suppliers. Um, the banks can then also decide and choose, okay, I, I these are the suppliers which are already existing customers um, and, and we can do more business with you or these are the uh, new players uh, which I would like to do more, more business. So it even becomes a source of new business for banks depending on who they were banking or uh, not banking. Right? So that is one space of um, fintech, right? The second space of fintech is where they bring new technology, mm -hmm. right? Or new ways of doing things, right? And I think that is the real benefit for the entire ecosystem um, because if there's a fintech which is bringing a new technology, let's say use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the decision-making to finance a particular uh, supply chain uh, or not to finance a particular supply chain. Now that becomes very, very valuable because with that kind of a technology or with that kind of a use case, it benefits everybody. It really benefits the bank because they can make the decision faster, quicker, who to finance and who not to finance. Uh, 
Um, so that is another area um, from a fintech perspective, um, uh, which which does. The third one uh, I would put fintech is who are bringing um, in many ways a bit disruption uh, or, or a bit of new money to the supply chain. So these are the players who will pick up the money uh, from people who have money and then bring it to the supply chain in different forms, right? Um, and then directly go and uh, onboard uh, some of the suppliers, uh, maybe more on the SME side and look to finance them, right? And they, they bring a very different aspect to the supply chain where they are creating a healthy sense of competition uh, so that everybody is trying to bring the best to the end users uh, in the supply chain. So I would say, again, to sum it all up, uh, it is a lot of collaboration, uh, which should continue to happen between banks and fintech. So um, you don't see in the future that, uh, you know, the uh, market value, the, the yes, the market uh, value, uh, sorry, market share, apologies, the market share of uh, fintechs will increase and it might cause, you know, um, some um, um, disruptions for, for, for banks? I think a very interesting question. Uh, right? No, so, no, not yet. Let's look at um, what is the total wallet for everybody, right? I mean, there's huge amount of unmet need uh, for financing in the supply chain, right? I mean, depending on what report you pick up, people talk not in billions, but in trillions of dollars, right? So, so, so that is the, the huge demand, right? So I think there is enough for everybody to uh, play. Uh, the key thing is how do we complement each other uh, in terms of leveraging each other's capability, um, making sure we understand what are the capabilities which each of the players are bringing and then leverage that and then result into financing. So I think there is enough for everybody to uh, bring and do. Um, I don't see a stage where um, it is resulting into uh, rapid uh, change in market share between banks and fintech. Kohi, uh, would you like to uh, comment? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, I agree. Generally, it's collaborative, but it didn't actually start in that same manner. I would say maybe if we trace back to 10 or 15 years ago. I think at some point in time, FinTech actually tried um, to do what the bank does. Um, and they went on to the space of uh, using technology efficiency and position themselves as enabling transactional financing rather than the bank's uh, philosophy of actually banking uh, comprehensively to detargeted clients. I think what we have observed is that they have sort of like fallen away and even FinTech themselves are coming forward to be more collaborative rather than rather to be competitive. So I think that is a positive development and more so also um, um, accelerated by the fact that COVID pandemic impact has also gone to demonstrate that the traditional banking uh, and credit assessment approach in order to be a stayer, instead of just looking at churning transaction at one point in time when FMB actually slowed down to the point of no fresh transaction, it is not sustainable. So instead, what we are seeing today, the fintech that are probably a little bit more um, gaining traction 
um, within their own space or given industry or given markets are one that actually now turn to specialize in terms of managing, I would say, workflow for certain given industry specializations. We see platform that is catered for the commodity space, mimicking the uh, workflow requirement that some of these top commodity players require, bringing in the logistic aspect instead of actually the financing as a main core. The financing is then added on as part and parcel of the total value add. And similar example also exists in the other industries like in the textile, as well as in the construction and industrial, as well as in the FMB. So all of them actually try to focus more in terms of facilitating key anchor clients in those industry space to make the, maybe uh, quoting our colleagues' uh, words, the physical as well as the information supply chain and leaving the financial supply chain aspect more to the bank. And in that space, uh, we also see more co-creation can be built where the bank comes in to bring our subject matter expertise in terms of how we see financing, what kind of data that is required, what kind of workflow, as well as uh, data exchange or even information exchange relating to the underlying transaction needs to flow through in order for us to facilitate to bring the working capital liquidity back to the ecosystem. So I would say that uh, other than the work collaboration, complementary, um, I will add on co-create. And we are seeing some of the upcoming platform um, are coming to the bank as well to say, can we build the ultimate um, solution um, together so that the bank will use it uh, rather than just becoming a standalone um, information or supply chain platform. So um, from this, I'm going to jump to my next uh, question, which is uh, supply chains, integrated networks, as we just uh, mentioned right now. Um, the problem with them is that they're not responsive to um, emerging technologies and um, geopolitics and uh, customer demand. So um, in, in your opinion, and based on your experience, how will the um, current uh, market leaders uh, react amid the disruptions and uh, you know, build resilience into their supply chains uh, moving forward? You know, the supply chain itself, though the whole philosophy on supply chain has evolved quite a bit, right? So yeah. there was a time when there was a talk about just-in-times inventory. So the supply chain was all managing just-in-time inventory, right? Now, if you speak, nobody talks about just-in-time inventory. Right? Everybody's talking about just-in-case inventory just in case I need more goods or just in case my shipment gets delayed. Do I have enough raw materials? Do I have enough inventory right now? Um, so supply chain itself is evolved quite a bit. So, so what are the broad two or three things which have changed? Right? Number one, the, the philosophy on how do you manage your inventory has itself changed. Right. The second one is um, gone are the days when you had very long supply chain, which means, you know, um, you had one place factory and the manufacturing was happening somewhere and raw material was getting in different. Right? Now, the supply chains have become much more shorter. What do I mean with that? Right? They want the factories and the suppliers to be closer. They want the procurement to be happening um, somewhere closer. Um, companies want to be closer to the markets which they are selling. So supply chains are becoming um, shorter um, as well. right? And they're becoming more local. When I say local, it does not mean it is every country by country. It's like hugely 
in in many countries and everything is happening in countries right there is already a talk about other example china plus one strategy and, and we see a lot of companies moving towards it right? um as a result of all of this as supply chains are uh, have evolved already i would not say are evolving but already evolved in many cases um we see new ask or new areas of uh, demand from the supply chain right um the first one is that um it is resulted into um shorter supply chain so so things are moving uh, or, or moving faster and hence we have to respond to those faster now digital in many ways help with that because with a digital transaction you can do things faster you can um, evolve much more faster um the second aspect of supply chain is the financing requirements have changed right it's no longer a uh, 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 financing which is uh, long in terms of um, uh, supply chain or the tenor wise but multiple people getting involved and then you're financing uh, towards that right uh the third aspect which we hear quite often is that companies are really not only talking about financing to their direct suppliers but the supplier suppliers and supplier supplier suppliers so what we call or the industry calls deep tier financing right and their supplier so how does the financing go deeper into the supply chain uh and again technology is helping quite a bit uh, on that uh, you have blockchain uh, as a key enabler um uh, in many ways the genesis of that started in china where uh they already had something similar on a paper product and now it's all becoming digital on blockchain platforms multiple blockchain platforms are now able to offer um solution around that right and banks i see are actively participating in supporting that needs uh for the supply chain um i'm going to jump to our last topic for uh, for today um leading financial institutions are incorporating ESG strategies they're incorporating ESG strategies in the trade finance and supply chain financing operations of business um large businesses and small and medium enterprises as well not just large businesses they're facing increased um ESG expectations as the governments have been introducing uh, you know um carbon commitments to incorporate social and governance um performance So uh Pohi I'd like to ask you um uh, in your opinion uh, based on your um uh, experience um how can financial institutions um invest in uh, you know financing uh, SMEs to adopt a broad spectrum of green and sustainability linked products to tie financial strategies to their ESG uh, plans and on top of that um uh, what do you think banks are doing uh, to support the ESG transition um this is a very big i would say and deep topic um for ub we started our journey in green sustainable trade finance specifically uh or slightly more than a year back when we participated uh with one of the industry task force uh led by our central bank um to actually co-create uh, a white paper for the uh industry adoption uh in driving the green and sustainable working capital uh financing uh for singapore mm-hmm. so with that um what we have taken on um as well is to lead uh by running and launching some of this uh framework aspect into the industry and you will be philosophy in terms of making this widely available um to all the client segment especially in the SME space where they may have less avenue in terms of investing 
or spending costs uh, to get self-qualification is to try to embed um, the green and sustainable trade finance into their day-to-day -day trade flows. So um, our framework entails that you can either get qualified uh, for green trade finance uh, classification, either if by entity you qualify, or by project you qualify, or by product or purpose you qualify. So we have substreams uh, against each of these themes and adapted and moderated according to the different targeted industry that we look to launch. And we have successfully pushed out um, the, this aspect across our core markets, not just in Singapore, but in our Southeast Asia as well as greater China market as well, to make this all available. So the idea is to simplify it so that everybody can partake as long as they have the trade flows that we will help them to assess whether it qualifies. Now, from a bank standpoint, definitely you will need to then engage and build up the resource that are subject matter experts in helping you to monitor as well as to report the relevant uh, classification according to all this uh, framework pillar. It is also important to make sure that we have back-end booking processes uh, to then be able to distinguish between the green and the non-green transactions. So not only is the facility the bank for our own reporting downstream, as well as to enable our customer to demonstrate their activities that is in this space as well. So I would say that for banks who are interested, who does not necessarily have their own framework as yet, they will have to consider the processes for booking, for classification, for review, as well as for reporting. And if it's still going to be a manual process, definitely uh, the relevant technology uh, as well as subject matter experts needs to be enabled in order um, to, to, to make all the necessary review um, consistent. So that is one aspect. Now, I think to the second part of your question, uh, how do we then move on uh, from as it is already deemed as green to transitional green trade finance? Now, that is when I think the um, technology enabler uh, will be very, very critical. Because in order to meet prescribed um, sustainable metrics, it is very important to first have data. And the data needs to be measurable after it being captured to be then packed against all this uh, prescribed standard in order for the bank as well as for our client uh, to prove that they have met the industry standard or their given uh, product. Uh, standards. So that is uh, one aspect that, again, UOP has been working uh, with a consortium of banks leading the digitalization of green trade finance uh, for this um, angle. We are partnering, of course, our central bank as well as a newly launched um, data infrastructure. Um, I think we can share the name is SG TradeX, uh, which has been launched on the 1st of June. Uh, to try to bring this all together. But definitely, it cannot be created overnight. It needs to be um, worked through as a journey because even from a broader perspective, sustainability is itself an evolving uh, topic. And we will need to bring in 
incorporate all the various different regulatory requirements and standards, um, even for a single same product in different countries, it could actually have slightly different standard. We need to be able to incorporate that. So it is still a journey to come. Uh, but again, you know, we are setting ourselves uh, to, to really journey this, not only uh, with our fellow banks, but also with our core participating clients. We are bringing in, uh, for example, the industry leading players as well as their ecosystem partner in order to build use cases that will be relevant and adaptable uh, for the rest of the other industries that will eventually roll out. So, yeah, this is a very important and exciting space to watch. Ashutosh, would you like to uh, comment on the question? Just to add um, a few things. So first of all, I mean, sustainability is very important for us as a bank as well as Mizo. Um, it's something very important to support our customers and and. And in many ways, it's not just for us, but I think every bank, it is very important. In many ways, we owe it for our future generations. We owe it to them to get it right. Um, and financial institutions or banks are playing their part by providing the financing towards that goal, right? Um, when we look at it, we look at it in a few different paths. So uh, one is the transi transition finance, where if there are industries uh, which are transitioning into uh, areas, then how do we work with them in terms of financing, making sure that we have good understanding and the financing is going towards the right use and, and will really help the company transition into green, right? So um, that is one. Uh, from a trade and supply chain perspective, um, I would put it into two more parts. The, the, the second one is how do we help companies with their scope one and scope two emissions, right? Which is really about green, right? So if the company is directly involved into uh, producing or selling or, or or using things which are green in nature, so that that is something which is um, green trade finance. And the third one, which is again now <clears throat> we see a lot of demand for that, which is towards scope three emission, which is you know this is not directly by the company but their ecosystem, their suppliers and other players, right? And that is where we see a lot of ask about. Um, financing the supply chain, uh, but more towards uh, sustainability linked loan kind of a thing. Right? So that is, again, a big area of focus for us. Um, we continue to um, help and support our customers in the journey as uh, the entire, I would say, the entire world is transitioning from where we are into a more greener world, uh, a world which we would all want to be part of from a uh, future perspective. Um, and, and we are very, uh, um, I would say, uh, very keen to see that we all work as an industry towards that. How do you think partnerships between um, banks and, um, you know, technology providers and the public sector bodies can help in developing the sustainable transformation of uh, supply chains? Uh, I think the participation of the public sector um, together in addition to fintech is, 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 is very, very important, um, especially on the aspect of um, enforceability. Um, treat particularly um, is not just domestic, it's also cross-border. Mm -hmm. And when we go into cross-border trade, um, the transfer of title of goods, the establishment of genuineness of goods flows, um, and finally, to the point of enforceability uh, against title or against control of goods are very, very important, especially if we are only dealing with data. 
uh, that is just one aspect. Another aspect is that data flows are often also not just for the uh, control as well as title, but also for reporting that's important. Uh, but having said that, I think just to add on, um, government and fintech and the bank are not the only parties. An entire complete ecosystem is a lot bigger than that. Our anchor clients, their spokes, uh, be it whether it's a supplier, whether it is the buyer, the distributor, their logistic service provider, um, the sometimes the, the warehouse providers, um, the survey inspectors, and so on and so forth, need to all come together. Because otherwise, you'll be chasing more paper that is outside the system than to really try to make a transparent decision. So I think the government push will also help to bring forward all these different players into one system. Thank you, Pohi. I actually agree with you that, uh, you know, the uh, initiatives by the public sector or by the government uh, would help, you know, uh, developing the, uh, the transformation. And uh, as you said, it is uh, a larger ecosystem than just banks and, and fintechs. It's, it's, an entire, it's an entire ecosystem. I, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, back to um, Ashutosh. Um, Ashutosh, would you like to um, comment on, uh, you know, uh, how the partnerships can help in developing the uh, sustainable uh, uh, transformation? Is there anything you'd like to add? I think just maybe um, add to what uh, he has already mentioned, right? So, yeah. uh, first of all, completely agree that it is about the entire ecosystem coming together. It's not just about um, the government. Having said that, um, supply chains are international, right? It's just not about one country or a set of countries. It has to go multiple countries. So, government to government partnership is quite important. Um, what we see is that certain countries have moved quite fast in terms of making things more digital, simpler, adoption of um, uh, digital laws in terms of movement of goods, whether it is bills of lading or, or invoice and other things. Uh, there are countries which are catching up. I think that is one area where uh, we need to see more traction to move things um, faster. Uh, as an example, I would put Singapore as really up there in terms of taking things forward and moving fast. Um, but, you know, a lot of other countries in the region uh, are uh, moving, moving forward. But but there is um, definitely a space to move things faster, to do things um, quicker. It's clear that the supply chain industry and uh, business continu continuity sorry, risks are all around the world. And um, with the drastic increase in commodity prices and the supplier failure during the pandemic and the current geopolitical uncertainty, obviously, as we know, such as the, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis. Um, hence, the global supply chain industry and trade finance players um, have to consider the major factors that are impacting the um, global market, such as um, supply chain risk, data modeling, and implementing a, a digital supply chain strategy while considering, you know, the rise of um, um, cyber attacks and ESG standards. Um, amid the disruption of global trade, um, pure efficiency plays and incremental innovation are no longer enough to compete. Um, banks must uh, embark on a trade transformation journey and ultimately may have to disrupt themselves and completely reinvent the role of a global trade bank. Um, financial institutions, regulators, and governments 
uh, must collaborate with you know the new digital players, fintechs and rectechs, agencies, companies, and SMEs in order to design a standard framework to be compliant and efficient, as well as overcome the continuous uh, uncertainty of the global markets. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Matthew Welch, International Resource Director, the Asian Banker, and Mr. Fu Ping, President and Managing Editor of the Asian Banker, who will be leading the annual Heads of Transaction Finance and Risk Dialogue. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to the Global Transaction Finance Reinvented Conference and Awards 2022. And we want to thank all our moderators before, as well as our panelists, for some excellent panel discussion. Matthew and I are very happy to be your host for this event, which also incorporates the head of transaction finance and risk management dialogue, as well as the risk management and financial markets award ceremony. A very warm welcome to all our international council of advisors, including Matthew here and Bill Chua, who joins us by Zoom. This is now the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic. While we have become better at protecting ourselves from its worst effects and borders are reopening, a sense of normality is at last returning. Here we are exercising some caution and are holding this event virtually. As for the financial services industry, the past three years have been an unprecedented time of disruption and change that has thoroughly tested the resolve and resilience of organizations. The pandemic has changed things for the better and also for the worse. For the better, the accelerated pace of digitalization and innovation has brought home the point that the future is clearly digital. It has enabled us to automate, to scale, and to personalize at a level and with a speed like never before. But for the worse, aside from the human cost, it's caused supply-side shocks and also perpetuated the easy monetary and financial conditions that are now driving the inflationary pressures that we're suffering from today. Beyond the immediate effects of inflation and its threat to economic growth, other significant uncertainties and risks persist. Heightened business uncertainties, volatile demand for liquidity, and the need to switch business as usual to virtual channels has created one of the most trying operational environments for financial institutions and for all of you. As we transition from low interest rates to higher interest rates with the heightened inflationary pressures, the prospect of economic slowdown will continue to constrain revenue and profit growth, and the industry will have to continue to prioritize cost management. The silver lining amid the crisis is that the acceleration among corporates to go digital and to use online tools has helped FIs to increase the efficiency and lower their costs to serve. We are still far from coming out of the woods. Beyond the threat of a lingering COVID resurgence, geopolitical tensions are elevated across the world in East Europe and closer to home across the Taiwan Straits. At the same time, there are fundamental issues with our current state of globalization as we are in a bifurcated and increasingly polarized world where we are transiting from globalization to more regionalization and forming of blocks that threatens the sustainability of global supply chains and trade, whether for our energy, our food, or for other resources that our livelihoods 
or even life depend upon. The pandemic has uh, exposed the fragility of our plant supply chains and expedited reshoring and relocation to be closer to the centers of consumption or new markets. All this has been exacerbated by increased geopolitical tensions. This coupled with scarce liquidity at the end of the value chain shifted focus of corporates to conserving cash and assetting credit and financing to supply chain finance programs. New opportunities for customer wallet retention and expansion, as well as preservation of business franchise, are now predicated on the ability to support end-to-end -end digital journeys on integrated platforms. Now, our first question in terms of the new transaction banking business model amidst all these macro trends and conditions, how significant are the risks associated with higher inflation, economic slowdown, and ongoing geopolitical tension that we see today? Now, this first set of questions would like to um, uh, ask Mr. Amit Thagari, Chief Risk Officer at Axis Bank. Thank you for having me on the panel. Uh, I think the most important element is, uh, you know, the banking ecosystem, I think, has learned to live with this supply chain ecosystem, whether it is partnerships, fintechs, vendors. I think the way we look at it is that, uh, you know, some part of any, uh, you know, supply disruption can have uh, a big, uh, you know, impact on the banking system as well. Uh, so to that extent, uh, there is a lot of risks involved, the way we see it, given the fact that the, uh, you know, the, the vendors, the partnerships and the fintechs that we have bring a lot of value to uh, the banking system. Uh, you know, if I look at it from a, you know, customer user experience point of view, uh, they bring in a lot of innovation. But they also bring the associated risks. So one of the biggest risks that we see currently is also on the cyber side, for example, a large part of the, uh, you know, the risks associated with, uh, you know, attacks which have happened primarily have happened on, uh, you know, the vendors and the supply chain ecosystem uh, more than probably the frontline bank. So that's something that we believe is a big risk, which we're trying to mitigate. The second is in terms of the, uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, geopolitical situation itself in terms of trade flows uh, and the increased uh, scrutiny from the regulators. Uh, is uh, forcing us to kind of, uh, you know, tighten some of the controls that we have in terms of cross-border flows. Um, so while the business is inevitable, I think it's important for us to ensure that we, uh, you know, have that fine balance between uh, business opportunity and risk mitigation, uh, given the, you know, increased regulatory scrutiny, uh, given the geopolitical. Uh, and, and probably the third element, which I would probably say is the whole people factor. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, uh, you know, people have actually come out of the COVID. Suddenly, there is a, a whole host of, uh, you know, opportunities that have been presented in the market. Um, organizations, corporates, banks are all trying to uh, probably go out of the way to kind of capture that business. Uh, and I think uh, sometimes we could probably, you know, have this feeling that we are probably going overboard to make up for the last two years of uh, probably. Uh, uh, so we need to probably be a little more careful there in terms of this whole people element around, uh, you know, whether it's frauds, which are kind probably can increase or, uh, you know, the whole transaction monitoring itself in terms of KYC, AML, all of that. Um, I think that's the third uh, risk that we see, which we're trying to mitigate as an organization. Deutsche Bank, Sebastian Everett. Obviously, in terms of, uh, I mean, we've, we've gone through the various risks, right? Right now, in terms of uh, 
what we've seen in the in kind of thing. So clearly, in terms of the way you have to manage this risk, it's number one around your credit risk management, right? Which clients do you want? Well, do you want to work with? Who are the clients you're prepared to engage? And how do you service these clients globally based on your infrastructure, your architecture, um, and the various services that you, that you want to provide in the countries for the clients? And that goes around, as far as I'm concerned, around payment flows and trade flows, right? And um, clearly bringing back these elements of documentary trade in an environment where there are 18 risks, 18 concerns about moving goods from A to B, making sure that your suppliers and your exporters are, are getting paid. Um, do you have the architecture to support the, the control of these risks? And uh, what are the products that you are making available to your clients to make sure that you play within this secure environment? So uh, how are, how are you know, uh, transaction banks dealing with those challenges? And Vanguard from Bank of America are in the call. So would either one of you like to um, take that question on uh, what risk and how are you mitigating them? Thanks. No, the, 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 the risk is uh, basically looking at um, the onset of the clouds of uh, recession and um, just coming out of the pandemic through which we navigated pretty well in terms of helping our clients to kind of you know, manage the risks that came through the pandemic in terms of downturn and also in terms of managing the uh, processes, working remotely, providing them with all the comforts, how to kind of you know, um, manage their operations in an uninterrupted way. So the digitalization played a key catalyst in that in that uh, journey. Through and the high inflation is what is um, pervading all the countries. One, how do they manage one their liquidity? Uh, second, how do they can release some of the trapped cash in some of the countries in currencies where they cannot move? That's the second uh, data sovereignty. Data protection is becoming a big topic for all the uh, countries, more and more increasingly governments are getting extremely protective. In that sense, how do we manage and help our clients to, to overcome that kind of risk if any change and impact that could, that could result in um, some interruption in their operations? And the third one is uh, uh, basically um, helping them through the supply chains, what kind of solutions, what kind of you know, mechanism that we could help them deploy so that you now they could um, uh, see a better balance sheet management and better um, you know, data management as such. So um, at this point, uh, we also like to call on one of our international advisors who joined us. We you know, uh, earlier kind of uh, did a shout out to him. Uh, Bill, would you have some observation about uh, uh, from and also the submissions that we've sent over for the advisors to look at to, to kind of detect some of the trends that the industry is going through this year, especially on the macro environment. Uh, okay, uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm probably the least qualified to talk about it because you are in the industry are kind of looking at it from the outside. But based on you know my interaction with uh, companies, with uh, with banks, and from your submission, I think you know we kind of covered some of the points up. Uh, 
the question is how can banks uh, i guess you know work that technology better so that they can then comply with the requirements whether it's sanctions whether it's uh, um the other area which i personally believe uh, and maybe an, as an old fashioned banker banks will never go away i think all of us would be around for a long long time right so take that as a uh, comfort but we would be increasingly under stress as you know the whether it's fintech or the technology firms look at a uh, more creative way of doing business okay so that's something that we need to um, to be concerned about um and the one especially in the areas of trade uh, i think two or three trends that's happening with the us weaponization of the us dollars i think increasingly countries are going to move away from dollars dollars would always be there but i think increasingly you find that the other currencies will come to play um the question is whether would there be two blocks basically the american block or the us block and the chinese russian block i personally think there'd be more than two blocks um because with india right one thing uh to be a force of its own and countries like brazil indonesia may yet create another block so we need to uh be concerned or be uh be prepared if the world bifurcate or not bifurcate if the world goes into different blocks i think a few other of uh, the dialogue participants have uh, spoken about about this um uh, the slowdown in uh, in globalization not quite a reversal yet but but we see uh definitely a shift in some of the traditional um uh trading uh, corridor for example because of geopolitical tension uh trade the creation of uh alternatives to US dollar and so on and so forth have you all seen any impact uh perhaps um uh, Hoi can comment on that you are right in terms of um, our observation um, is that the global world trade flow have sort of shifted uh, over the course of the last two years post uh, or during the, the COVID pandemic. And a lot of it are now within the ASEAN as well as the Greater China Corridors. And particularly, I think um, there are also uh, signs that the ASEAN or the within the Southeast Asia area, we are seeing the uh, divergent or earlier on, I think uh, Mizuho mentioned the word diversification. The China One Plus are actually moving towards Southeast Asia as alternative uh, production locations. So in terms of that, um, clearly we need to support our clients who are in this market to help stabilize the ecosystem for the anchor clients that may or may not be operating uh, from a directly from an Asia-Pacific standpoint. There are still US or European buyers that may be utilizing production uh, facility and capacity within Asia, uh, particularly Southeast Asia and Greater China to support their supply chain. We also learned that supply chain cannot just uh, be unplugged and we plug overnight. So while, while a lot of our anchor clients acknowledge the fact that the just in 
time no longer works, even mm-hmm. just in case struggles. Um, because you need to find alternative suppliers, you need to find alternative distribution channel before you can really deploy and say that the replacement are found. I think uh, we hear from all our fellow colleagues about the emerging risk, geopolitical supply chain disruption, uh, post-pandemic recovery. I think most of us are still feeling the impact of uh, all these to our trade flows. Uh, we are seeing that uh, came out as a consideration uh, with the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, where whether renminbi becomes an alternative currency of uh, choice. Uh, it is still early days, I would say, just to just to put it into perspective. We are still seeing our customer still relying on US dollar as a, as a mode of currency for their international trade. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are also seeing is uh, resulting from the supply chain disruption uh, in, in the region. Uh, there are longer DPOs. There's a need for upsizing program uh, as mm-hmm. a result of that in supply chain. And then there's increasing trend that we are seeing banks originate and syndicate the program down to the secondary market with the larger program limits that's put forth. Um, the other thing that is uh, more positive, where we see from OCBC, we are seeing higher digital adoption from our customer and the yeah. emergence of uh, you know ecosystem and platform that connects the large to the small. I would invite the group to, to, to come in, but certainly there the, are the worrying signs coming out from a macro and micro level out of China. But uh, let, let me bring that from real estate. Yes, certainly a concern. It's a large part of the economy, whatever, 20% of GDP has a fallout, goes across the industry. I think from a client perspective, we hear a lot of re-strategizing if it comes to, uh, to China. And let me quote one of our uh, global, but also Asian clients, um, using the term of ring fence China. So what does mm-hmm. Ring Fence China mean? Ring Fence China means you need to continue building a resilient supply chain. So can you afford mm-hmm. as a manufacturer, uh, if you are a garment company, fashion industry, uh, in, in retail, other areas, have these type of uh, uh, collaborated um, disruption, or do you need to need to change it? Um, so I think what we hear from our clients, there's quite a shift happening. But I think just to clarify that, when we talk about that shift, you won't see it this year, you won't see it next year. This really yeah. takes time to rebuild a, a, a supply chain. So what does the term then ring fence China mean? Saying we move some part of the production out of it, but let's, mm. let's not forget, we, we can't ignore China as a, as a market in itself. So what we hear from multiple clients is that they bring business into China to service a local Chinese market. So I think the ability the banking organization needs to, needs to bring to the table the flexibility and saying, yes, I have onshore China supply chain solution for the clusters building within China servicing ring fence China. Um, we've, we've got these pandemic-induced supply chain disruptions exacerbated, as we've been talking about, by the recent geopolitical conflicts and the inflated prices, which, of course, has meant that sometimes you need to finance things more because the value of the cargo has gone up and the ship's at sea for longer. And so the question we have here is how can uh, we as banks support, preserve, and stabilize supply chain finance yeah, just looking at supply chain, um, a few things are happening, right? Number one is um, 
the financing to the supply chain has become elongated, right? Because people are holding longer inventories. Um, so overall, from from a financing perspective, the requirement is gone up. If you look at if you look at the Baltic Tri Index, which is all about moving uh, the the tri cargo, the commodities, uh, it had really peaked uh, towards the fourth quarter of last year. October was when it really peaked, uh, moving above five thousand in terms of the levels. It has now come down to around. 2000, 2500, which is there. Similar, we can see from a container shipment prices. If you look at container shipment prices, it had again peaked towards um, September, October levels last year. A shipment from China to US would cost you something like $20,000 a container. So there is inflation, there is cost which the supply chain has to cater. And as banks, um, we need to be uh, making sure we understand the impact on supply chain and financing towards um, those um, supply chain. In fact, there is an uh, evolution which is happening where uh, fintech platforms are developing, where they're supporting the financing and the uh, facilitation of freight, whether it is freight on sea or whether it is uh, air freight. There is um, already some platform which are... What can banks do, Ashu, to support our clients so, better? So, so the first one is to um, get closer to our clients, understand, continue to support and finance them. Uh, it mm. has to move away from dollar value of financing to financing a shipment or X number of shipments. So we should start thinking as banks rather than saying, I will finance this company for $50 million to move to say, I will finance this company for two shipments or three shipments uh, at any point in time. And that that as a concept is quite important. So I would say uh, be with your client, uh, understand the supply chain, uh, facilitate that. And some things we need to do or do or think differently. We need to be at it. Now we talk about China, and uh, like to you know uh, get maybe uh, some perspective on Hang Seng Bank uh, with uh, uh, John Wong. Uh, I think uh, with the pandemic impact, I think China has been uh, trying to manage and uh, control the, the entire uh, profit, different province or different cities kind of restriction. But I think uh, it has been moving in on the on the positive trend now from what we see. And uh, during our daily dialogue with our colleagues uh, in, in the China, China branches, I think the entire, no matter the government, the community, or even the, 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 the other commercial uh, community, they are very cautious. They're trying to uh, ensure people's, uh, no matter is the, the, the business or the, the, the normal um, life of the people in China, uh, return, to, return to, to the BAU mode as soon as possible. And I... Um, I think we are seeing uh, there are certainly there's no down in the GDP growth, even from the different forecasts that we have seen. Uh, but still having said that, among the, the other countries or the large continents around the growth, uh, China is still the one uh, recording positive growth. And the positive growth actually, uh, the, uh, from what we see, is also uh, trying to be well spread across a different sector. It's not only the, the kind of, uh, government spending to stimulate the GDP growth, it's also to ensure uh, is, it has been helping across the different sector from the consumer perspective that we are facing challenges in China. I think uh, the, the different government and the regulatory body has been also been working with the banks in China trying to, uh, to, to handhold those kind as possible to ensure they are still operating in, in, a, in a smooth manner in order to, to control the problem. Um, mm. I think overall yeah. the sentiment is still positive on the, on the outlook of China. And, and what do you see in supply chain and trade from Kotak Mahindra's point of view? 
So if I were to say that uh, the world changed and India changed, and so did supply chain, especially in the last uh, 24 uh, odd months. And uh, you'll be surprised to know that uh, uh, the domestic supply chain businesses actually grew and grew significantly uh, uh, thanks to whatever was happening on the pandemic side or on the geopolitical side. Uh, part one, I think there are a few more things which happened. There is called a shift in demographics of corporate customer. Uh, uh, the users, I think, became more tech-savvy. And it is a more tech-savvy generation which came in. Um, the data and tech uh, uh, are becoming the key, uh, especially in supply chain where technology-enabled platforms and innovation uh, got created. And I think they are creating more efficiency to address the gaps. Uh, there are significant business and technology transformation programs, uh, including core platforms, uh, I think, which bring in uh, easing of cost and efficiency. And uh, uh, I think since there is a good payment uh, network uh, and good payment rails in India, uh, so the mm -hmm. power of data to identify what clients need, uh, what they needed, and proactively managing risks for client, I think, became important. Uh, regulations are the key, and uh, they again got focused and refocused a bit more. In my mind, uh, regulatory pressures actually have significantly increased operating costs and uh, uh, had affected some part of growth. But in spite of that, uh, I think the overall uh, growth will be significantly higher than uh, uh, on account of uh, the two things which I mentioned earlier. So to sum it all, I guess... Uh, uh, you see changes in the customer trends, you see some part of data and tech, you see uh, uh, regulations which need to be, uh, I think, which became more important. And uh, uh, thanks to whatever happened in the world, uh, India was able to adjust a bit better. Uh, currently, I think higher inflation becomes an important aspect which one takes care. And I hope, I think the data, tech, and a lot much uh, uh, regulatory uh, authentic data uh, will ensure that uh, the banks are able to take better decisions, um, uh, manage the risk uh, um, uh, better, and uh, are able to probably lend in a much smarter way compared to what, what used to happen on the supply chain side and the overall side earlier. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Shakabandari. Just while we're in South Asia, here from uh, Rack Bank, I think we've got Tarek Ula, Managing Director and Head of Corporate Banking. From Brack. So, Tarek, um, how are you seeing uh, supply chain trade in your part of the world? Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Uh, well, Bangladesh has been doing fantastic for the last four to five years because GDP has been moving around six to seven percent per year. So, everything was quite okay. But recent times, you know, world economy is uh, rapidly changing and amid uh, high inflation rate, higher interest rate, and supply chain disruption. Everything is, uh, you know, uh, making things more difficult nowadays. But mm. uh, all these aspects, we are doing fantastic. I think uh, during this pandemic and after this pandemic effect, uh, what we, we did in Bangladesh, because we are the largest SME bank in Bangladesh, and we are around, uh, we have been catering around 1.5 million uh, small business owners in Bangladesh, gladly that uh, around 90% of our corporate customers are using our digital platform. That actually portrays the situation as a whole. We've got our third question and we should uh, bring that out because mm -hmm. we've actually begun to talk about it already. And then 
Um, open APIs, third-party collaborations are enabling new ecosystems and value chains for transaction services across payment, across embedded finance. What challenges and opportunities, uh, in your opinion, uh, does this create for banks? So I think, I think in, in the new economy, I think uh, definitely that it calls for more uh, parties, the different parties in, in the ecosystem to collaborate together. I think I think as as I've mentioned earlier, the it's 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 it's, it's the the keyword today is 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 really in collaborating, but but also uh as in many parts of, of collaboration, uh when you there there are more parties and the bigger the ecosystem becomes, the the the, the more difficult it is to, to to make sure that everybody is is following, uh at the same pace in in, in mm. for the agenda. So I, I guess mm. stakeholder management becomes more difficult, and sometimes without without a a, a coordinator, uh, it becomes difficult to, to make sure that everybody is is equally interested to move ahead. So I I I, I think in, in in many extents, um, it it's is is getting everybody to, to go in the same direction at the same speed that that that, that is is the, the most challenging part in, in in collaboration. But I think for 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 the most parts. Everybody will agree that collaboration is this the name or the, the way to go forward. We should also, uh, on this issue of uh, third-party collaboration, systems, and value chains, speak to your UOB colleague uh, in Poe again for the trade broader ecosystems. I know you're working very hard at UOB with your digital transformation, which has been yes. coming along very well. Do you see part of this as collaborating with a broader ecosystem or do you see it as basically an internal bank thing and then you roll it out to your customer? Definitely, I think it's collaborative, but again, I prefer to use the word co-creation because then it actually represents um, equal stake as well as uh, vested interest in ensuring that the end product uh, is relevant not only to the um, bank, but also to like our anchor client, their suppliers, their distributor, and the larger ecosystem. So I think the co-creation is, is very important to ensure that digitalization as a journey uh, will come to speed rather than you know taking its a course of its own, which we all have our fair share of experience. It can actually lead to a very, very painful uh, journey. Uh, I think the other aspect is to ensure that uh, between system to system, ecosystem players can interact seamlessly and easily. Uh, that we hadn't uh, heard earlier from Vietnam as we've been all around the region and we're very interested in what you're seeing in supply chain and trade and uh, the ecosystem being built around it. Oh, can you give us a, a quick summary of what you see in Vietnam and is it similar to what we see in other countries? So so in Vietnam, especially called TechCombat, we we could focus on uh, ecosystem and value chain. And we we had uh, we have some case of like rising uh, scheme to support uh, uh, for SME and based on the risk of the angle so we can have the people um, pricing for, for SME and MSME customer in the value chain. Sometimes uh, in Vietnam we also shipping to 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 digital banking operating model. So in that case we can uh, we can have um, the platform to digitize all the the um, 
end-to-end -end customer journey in the supply chain financing uh, solutions. Um, uh, we also create new proposition you know, through all the bundling solution as well. And uh, I think that uh, in, in Vietnam, especially in 2022, uh, there are a lot of... Um, um, solution that support to to all the corporates and uh, we, we we are proud of that uh, all the, the the number of transaction and the value increase more good to hear and i know that state bank of vietnam also was uh, to the earlier point uh, and uh, i think Mrs. Nga is also alluding to it you've got a very strong uh, regulatory push in vietnam to move to these more digitized uh, trade platforms it's Good to hear that this is coming along well. Thank you very much. Okay, um, maybe we have one from Deutsche Bank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one last comment and uh, to kind of wrap up this dialogue session, if we can get a comment from Atu Jane uh, from Deutsche Bank. I think a lot of what the colleagues have said. I think to your point, the opportunities on the back of digitization are tremendous and clear, as is the social benefit and the need. And we see a lot of even more coming off the pandemic as the trade finance gap continued to widen. Having said that, I think the risks are many fold. Credit risk, working capital and liquidity risk, country and political risk, sanctions risk, client risk, cyber risk, regulatory risk, supplier risk, interest rate risk. Now, I think we do need to be exactly kind of hopeful and look at that as a real positive for our industry, because that means clients more than ever need advice and they need expertise, right? And how do we build the connectivity between the platforms? Given the geopolitical risks that we talked about earlier, where do you want to house the servers, right? Which rule of law is going to apply in case there's a dispute, right? So I think digitization in a domestic context, and I think Shaker was talking about that in India, the colleagues in you know, Bangladesh and Vietnam, the same, completely mm. with them. When we think really global trade, cross-border trade, I'm still really struggling to see where and how we build to that in the near term. But as Poe said, and I really like that, we've got to be part of the change, right? We've got to drive that and we've actually got to be hopeful around that. Um, I think the one thing that we can do and we should be doing already is digitizing our own process. We've got to standardize our process, simplify our process and automate our process. And I think that in and of itself will allow us to move faster, to move cheaper and inherently to also take more risk and try new models. Um, but maybe just to kind of, you know, wrap it up there. I would say that, you know, as much as I do want to be an optimist, yeah, you've got um, financing costs going up. And I think Matthew, you were alluding to that. Yeah, you've got interest rates going up, which in all the other risks are kind of, in a way, latent risks, right? We've been living with those for two years, but interest rate risk is very new. And, you know, kind of clients are now going to feel this in their bottom line very seriously. And we yeah. do have credit appetite, which in the context of these risks is kind of, stagnant and maybe even decreasing, right? So that gap is going to continue to be challenged. Again, we've got to be part of the solution, but uh, it does make for interesting times. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.